Hello and welcome to Actuarial People with myself, James Turner. I'm excited to be launching a brand new podcast where each week I'll be speaking with the UK actuary. My aim is to give you, the listener, greater insight into the people behind the profession and their personal career journeys. So we'll cover things like why and how they became an actuary, what they do on a day-to-day basis, how they balance work and study with life, any specialisms they've developed, and how their role has evolved over time. So whether you're an actuary yourself, or you're aspiring to become one in the future, welcome and enjoy. Welcome to Actuarial People, Alexis Tate. Hi. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Very well, very well. The nice weather's returned as well, so I'm sort of locked in a room. Don't want to turn my fan on in case it can be heard, but um, apart from that, doing doing well. I was just going to say, I've got a fan on. Does it, can you hear it, James? Uh, a little bit, but I can sort that out. The <laughs> listeners won't be able to by the time I'm I'm done, hopefully. <laughs> but you can be forgiven. Um, Alexis, thank you so much. Um, I, I know we've we've rearranged a couple of times, but I've been really looking forward to having you on as a guest. I wondered if, uh, for anyone who doesn't know who's listening to this, if you could just start by giving an overview of who you are and what you do today, and then we'll go back right to the beginning and work forwards. Okay, so um, I'm Alexis Tate. Um, I've worked in the actuarial industry for 20 years thereabouts coming up I think um, and my current role that I actually carry out is at Mercer um, and the role that I carry out is a GMP operations lead so I'm overseeing the operational structure for GMP equalisation and rectification for Mercer at the moment. Fantastic. So I'll start where I do every week which is asking you to cast your mind back to when you first realised that actuaries existed. Uh, so for me, um, I was at university. Um, I was doing my maths degree at the time um, in Sheffield. And I sort of got to um, my third year. I was doing a master's, um, straight master's. So I was in my third year starting to look at, well, what am I going to do when I finish my degree? Um, and decided that I needed to start applying for some roles in that summer before I was due to graduate. And actuarial was something that crossed my radar um, and decided to try and apply for some roles. I managed to get a, a role that summer um, with a small actuarial firm in Manchester at the time for the summer um, and that was my first experience of the actuarial profession and that's what then made me decide I was going to go and apply for the roles um, when I graduated. Yeah, how did it come across your radar? Was it a sort of recommendation from lecturers at uni or was it a different way? It was, it was somebody else that was doing the maths degree um, had mentioned it oh because we talked about accountancy and actuarial stuff between us um, my mum used to be an accountant, um, so I was intrigued to find out what the actuarial side was because it was a bit different um, and see if that would would sort of take um, to my skill set in, in the math skill sets that I'd got um, and if it would keep me engaged um, in terms of career path. Okay. Now, I should say you're you're not an actuary these days, but you started on the actuarial career path, just in case um, anyone's wondering. We'll, we'll come on to that. I'm sure. Um, so you, you you had a bit of experience in a small consultancy and then you got your first job after graduating at, at a large one. Yes. So um, when I, obviously in that final year, you apply for your graduate schemes that you can find a job ready for when you finish. Um, and I was recruited into Aon on their graduate programme at the time. Um, 
it required me to relocate. So I lived up in the Northwest with my family. I'd been at university in Sheffield and the role took me down to Bristol. So it was a complete new experience, relocated as well as um, taking on a new job. Um, but it was, a, it was a fantastic opportunity, a really great team down there as well that I'd worked with and a great step on my ladder in terms of career path. Yeah. And did, did you, had you deliberately sort of sought out a role in pensions as a result of your work experience or, or how did you come to specialise in pensions? Yeah, I, I think at that time it was a comfort path probably because I'd had that experience in the consulting world in a pensions consultancy, which was a lot more calculations based in that summer um sort of the summer role I had um it was all pensions related and I think it was I'd applied for a few roles one was um legal in general I think it was at the time and one was Aon and I chose the Aon role because it felt more comfortable to me because it was pensions I'd done that work I knew what to expect and I felt like it would just keep to what I'd already known um as time has progressed I think I've realized you need to sometimes take that jump and try new things and not be put off by the unknowns <laughs> <laughs> do you remember your first sort of year or two how how was it what sort of stuff were you working on in the early days yeah so the first year um there was three of us that started in the Bristol office together so which was really nice there was several of us across the country that were brought together for training so those first few months some of it was in the office some of it was at trainings and it was around different locations um the work was straight away jumping in at the deep end. I can remember being involved in client meetings very early on, which was unusual in the industry at the time. Um, but immediately sort of getting that exposure to clients, building up rapport, relationships with clients over the phone, um, and, and just building that skill set um, in terms of the consulting skill set as well as the actual p- pensions technical aspects of what we were doing. Did a lot of stuff on valuations, um, transfer values, all the sort of calculation side, which is what helps to build that technical skill set and, and, and the day-to-day running of a business for, for actuarial side. Yeah. So did it meet your expectations in terms of what being an actuary is all about? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think I hadn't expected to meet with clients so quickly, um, but it was a good thing because that overcame that fear very quickly because you'd done it. Um, I think having others that were in the same sort of peer group with me in the office had really helped as well so because I'd got there was three of us all at the same time experiencing it so we had a good social scene as well so you broke off from work really well together some things we'd work all together on some things we worked separately on for clients we had several consultants in the office that we all worked with so we got experience from different consultants very different styles as well so different actuaries have different styles yeah and how you mentioned you had to relocate for the job how were you finding it being somewhere completely new was did you just put work at the center and not think too much about where you lived or 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 did actually you know did it help with building a network and friends and that kind of thing yeah I was I was in a position where I didn't move on my own so I'd met my now ex-husband sadly um but I'd met him as I went off to university and we actually both relocated to Bristol together so he had to go through a career change as well um and I at the same time was doing it so I think because we'd got both of us doing that scenario um we had each other to sort of pull on for it we made friends very quickly through both of our roles because we weren't just the only ones starting at that time um we actually rented a flat in the center of Bristol so the social scene was a big thing in those first six months you were able to go out dead easy after work and know that you weren't far from getting home 
Um, we that we'd actually bought a house before I started my role, oh. uh, which was when I think back about it, it was really scary. But we we just did it because we said, well, we're going to be down here for the time being. We didn't want to waste money on rent. Um, so we actually put a deposit down on a house that was just on the outskirts of Bristol as well. So although we were in the centre for six months, we then moved to a new build house as well. Um, but I think we built up the networks in that six months um, in the centre and got to know lots of people, which was good. It's scary. It's scary. And any change is scary. Um, but I think if you've got good businesses that you're moving into and um, you, you network and you're willing to sort of socialise with people, you can quite easily build up those networks. I also um had a hobby outside of work which is girl guiding um and I immediately got involved in that when I went to Bristol as well so I'd done that at university I'd done it before I'd gone off to university so you sort of have another network of people that's not work that you immediately then get to know because you're getting involved in volunteering um and I think that's that's been a big thing for me uh, across the years is I do a lot of volunteering outside of work yeah Nice. Okay. So going back to those sort of first couple of years, were you taking the exams? Did you start the exams straight away? And how did you find balancing that with work? Yeah. So straight away doing exams, I think in those early years, it was fine. Uh, I always joke and say I took 60 exams to get my degree. (laughs) So I was used to exams. I I was doing them every six months. Um, And so it just continued when I started at work. Work were really good, obviously, giving us a day a week to study. Um, I passed all my actuarial exams first time round at bar one um, and I, I had my stumbling block with my final exam which I still haven't passed to this day but everything <laughs> else I've passed um, so it, it's 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 not hindered me in how the direction that I've gone in my career um, I think I hit a point where I'd been doing them for so long I think it was about four or five years I decided that well I need to progress in my actual personal life so personal life took a bit over and I, I actually had my daughter um, and that's what's then probably caused me to not get that final exam. But it's also not needed now for the roles that I do. Um, I appreciate it's a good qualification to have under my belt, but it's not stopping me doing what I do or the experience that I've got through work probably counts for more at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, so is, is the final exam different to the others? Was, was that part of the reason as well or you just, just prior to you started to change? Different topic. So I I passed everything that was all the normal early exams, which were a varying topic. It was when I got to the specialist papers and it was, I I just couldn't pass the investment exam. Um, So I'd I'd got all my pensions one, I'd got the the fellowship exam, I'd just not got my um, other one, which obviously we were encouraged to try and do an investment paper or a, a risk management paper. And I just couldn't, I just couldn't pass it. Fair enough. So did you, I think you, you, you moved from that company after around well almost five years do you remember what the sort of catalyst was why you started thinking about you know potentially exploring the market we had some reflection on, we'd lost three family members in the space of three years and whilst we were only sort of three and a half hours drive away um I think we felt we were too far away from home for getting back when there were things or for supporting family through some of that so we felt like we were missing out on time with family members and, and that's what drew us back up north. I actually, I transferred internally. Um, so I was really lucky. Aon wanted to keep me and I'd approached them that we wanted to move back north. They transferred me to the Manchester office. Um, so yeah, I, I moved up to the Manchester office with Aon at the time. And I think I was with them for probably about nine, ten months before I decided I wasn't getting the exposure that I used to have. Um, and that's what then made me gravitate. I moved across to, I started to look at other roles, applied for several roles, um, and I chose to work at Mercer at the time. Mm-hmm. Do you remember why you chose Mercer? 
Hi guys, we'll get straight back to the conversation in a second. Just a quick reminder that when I'm not recording podcasts, I specialise in helping pensions actuaries with their career moves, and I'd love to help you when the time comes to explore your options. I work with people at all levels, whether you have a couple of years' experience through to senior positions. My approach is different to most recruiters. I started my own business last year and work alone, which means I have zero pressure to hit targets and can just focus on giving the best possible help and advice. So whether you're thinking of making a move now or would just like to understand your options for the future, please get in touch via LinkedIn or email james at turnerperkins.com. Back to the show. Mercer was, I felt like it wasn't a massive jump from where I'd already been. Um, I was being offered the opportunity to do the things that I had been doing out of the Bristol office. So I was at the point where I was going to client meetings when I was in the Bristol office. Um, And when I moved to Manchester, because I didn't come up with clients, I was sort of on the back foot that everybody had got clients up in the Manchester office and there wasn't the bigger scope for me to step in. Um, I got more involved in technical work when I was up in the Manchester office, which was fine. I enjoyed it. I did a lot of valuation stuff and valuation coding. Um, and actually networked very well with a certain colleague that gravitated me into another part of my career path later down the line. Um, and I just felt I was I was worried I was losing that consulting, client-facing aspect um, after sort of nine, ten months and felt I needed to make sure that I got that exposure again. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's what made me apply elsewhere and see what, what was available. And Mercer was able to offer that to me. Um, the people I met in my interview seemed really friendly Um I felt like the culture was quite right as well at Mercer. Um, so I took the jump at the time and decided to go for it and see what happened. And were you still chipping away at the investment exam at that point? Yeah, I was still doing the exams at that point. Um, I think that was probably around when I first sat the ST5 exam, as it, were, it was at the time. Um, I Within 12 months of being at Mercer, I fell pregnant with my daughter. So um, that's when things started to go a bit more pear-shaped. It was a lot harder to try and study. Um, you've got the commitment of dealing with childcare as well as work. Um, and, and my husband at the time had a very demanding role. He was a, um, a police officer. So it, 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 the, the shift patterns just didn't help with trying to study as well as doing work and having a child at home. Yeah. Did you think you were putting the exams on hold to pick up later? Or did you at that point realise that it wasn't wasn't essential at all and you could still progress without it? Yes. During during the time that I was pregnant, I gravitated into a specific type of role at Mercer. I'd started to work with what was called the Scheme Exit Strategy Group at the time. So it was covering the wind-ups of schemes, the PPF stuff. Um, We also introduced something that was called the Mercer Pension Buyout Index. And we started um, providing that as a service to clients so that they could see where they were on their their journeys to buying out, in effect. Um, And whilst I was doing all that I think I'd started to realize that I didn't want to become a scheme actuary mm-hmm. um, I enjoyed the consulting aspects I enjoyed the technical aspects but I never wanted that full-on responsibility of being a signing out actuary of something and, and that responsibility so my exam in my head probably became less critical to my role um, and then when I'd come back off maternity I just lots of different reasons there was a lot of change in work um, the team that I reported into had changed um, and so I, I took the jump of it of moving across into that scheme strategy group, um, and I I actually had the, the this Mercer pension buyout index took off at that point, and so I was actually offered the opportunity to go and train colleagues over in India, 
Um, so I did a trip to India to go and train colleagues over there, gave me another exposure that I'd not really experienced before. Um, so it's overseeing the movement of work from one location to another. And it just sort of went on from there. And then and I think I then decided what was my next journey. Um, I actually went through deciding that the, the work-life balance was quite pressured with children at home and the, the pressure of my, my husband's job, not necessarily just work. It was a whole combination of things. So I decided to start looking at what else I could get involved with. And that's when I'd reconnected with a colleague that I'd used to work at Aon. I'd, I'd also moved to Mercer and they were in a role that was in our... Um, like IT area so they did all the support between developers of tools and the business in terms of developing the tools to be in line with what was needed legislation wise around actuarial um and I jumped into that role because he was actually leaving the business so it was actually replacing him at the time um and I jumped into that role thinking actually this is something that's I'm, I'm good at it'll be less pressured I can do some of this a lot more easily around children um and I've, I did that role for quite a while. So, yeah, it was about four or five years, I think. Yeah, nice. So this, because I, I was looking at your um, LinkedIn profile and you've been at Mercer since 2008, so a, so a long time. But during that time, you've there are sort of six, seven, eight different roles. And, and it, I don't mean sort of consultant, senior consultant. I mean different teams with different focuses, which I'm, I'm really keen to get, get better insight. But before we go into that, how... Was it was it fairly lucky that that opportunity, that first one, opened up, or, or were you doing things from your end to sort of put yourself in a position where the the more interesting opportunities were offered to you? I th- I, I think it was luck <laughs> to a certain extent. Timing was was a, a big thing, so the timing just happened to align to when a role had come up because roles don't massively come up in those areas either. So when I moved into IT you needed the actuarial skill set because it was all about understanding the actuarial concepts, being able to interpret them, being able to document them in certain ways so that someone who knows nothing about the actuarial concepts could then build tools around that. So it was writing specifications. We'd then do testing of those tools when it came back. Um, There was a lot around our valuation tools, for example, for Mercer that we were involved with. There was a big project on at the time as well. We were moving from one valuation system to another um, and trying to make sure that the old one got decommissioned, but the new one then had to take account of all the new funding regulations and all the changes that were happening from um, legislation um, and and developing them further for the varying sizes of schemes as well that we we deal with across Mercer. So there was a lot of of investment into that side of the, the business at the time. So I was quite lucky that I think this role came up. I think my networks had helped in that scenario and Mercer as a whole as well. Like we, we encourage people to move around um, within the business. So, you know, if, if something doesn't quite fit, have conversations with your manager. And I think some of those conversations had started to happen. And so the, the networks connecting them together had happened as well. So it just happened to all the stars aligned is how I'll describe it. Yeah. Um, and, and just bringing me into that role um, went to apply for it, understood what it was about because I used to work with this guy um, and I got stuck in. Right. So, so you're on the IT team. Do you remember when, when that was from and to, just to give us an idea? So my daughter was born in 2009. I reckon we prob- I probably moved across there in around 2011. Okay. Around then. Is it, is it on my LinkedIn, James? <laughs> uh, it is, but it's not. that They haven't put it in chronological order in their normal fashion. So actually, so Actuarial Systems Business Analyst, July 2012 to 2019 is that is that the period fine yeah that's about right yeah um but before that it's got project manager as well yes so project manager um what's the date on the project manager so project manager october 2018 to april 2019 
So it looks as though you may be doing that. Yeah. So I was doing that as part of it. So um, I, I had my son in 2014. And sadly, I also got divorced not long after I um, had my son. So I became a single mum with two children um, living in South Manchester, but working in the Liverpool office because that's where our IT teams were based. And I went through numerous things because of divorce, obviously. Um, I had a mental health um, period of my life where I actually had I, I actually had a breakdown during that window. Um, just dealing with all the aftermath of divorce, I had to relocate my children. I'd had to change my whole life and how things were working. It wasn't how I'd planned it to be. Um, so I actually had some time off work. Um, work were extremely supportive. Um, I had my experience through um, the mental health support systems that exist across the country. Um, and I was very lucky that I had private medical as well through work because that's actually the route that I went was down the private medical for it. They were very supportive. Work was supportive. Um, the care that I got was really supportive. And during that window, it gave me an opportunity to stop and consider what I was doing in terms of my my work, my life, my work-life balance. Um, and I looked at what I was doing inside of work and what I was doing outside of work. I actually had some sessions with a life coach. And some of the stuff that came out of that was that I'd built up a lot of skill sets around people, networking, people management, organizational project management through my guiding experiences. Um, I'd hold various roles for girl guiding. I'd, I'd been organizing international opportunities for girls. I'd been doing fundraising as well as running my usual units of guides or rangers um, and also developing um, various things that were at different levels within guides and you have a structure that's like the units, districts, divisions and then county and then it goes up to regions and I'd had several roles all through that. So there were loads of skills that I felt I wasn't utilising in the workplace. Yeah. So I then started looking at what those skills were um, and project management was something that sort of seemed to jump out because I was doing so much organisation. Um so I'd actually approached work and said that it was a skill I wanted to try and develop in work. So I was pulled into some IT projects that could be project managed. So I worked with our IT project management team and was seconded into that on a part-time basis. Um, oversaw some big structural changes that I think a lot of the industries went through at the time to do with um, what we call single sign-on. So you, you basically are able to log onto your computer and it'll log into the different applications because they're all interlinked. Um, whereas it, instead of having to go in and log into every single um, application. Yeah. And so I was involved in some of the rollout of that and project managing it. And I, it just went from there, really. I decided, well, actually, these skills I seem to be good at. The feedback had been really good. So I then started to look at conversations with different people across the business. What sort of roles would encompass some of this? Um, one of the skills that I'd had through guiding was um, strategic and um, problem solving. So when I started having conversations with some senior colleagues that I'd used to work with and had done really well in their career paths, and operational transformation type roles were being discussed with me. So I started to keep an eye out for when those roles came up. And that's when I then took my next career jump. Um, I applied for a role that was um, being advertised um, as a resource management role for the wealth business at the time. Um, so, and I, I can remember going through the process, I had to put together some slides around what I would propose for the business and how we might deal with some of this going forward, which is completely new considering I didn't know huge amounts about it, but it was a um, real great experience. And I actually got the, the role off the back of it, which was great. 
So I transferred back then into the consulting side of the business, but in an operational transformational type role. Well, so, I mean, this wasn't designed to be a sales pitch for for Mercer, but it sounds as though, (laughs) you know, they, they actually listened to you. You obviously went through a lot of a lot of things outside of work, but when you came back, had conversations around what would work for you they've listened and they put it into to place did you know that would be the case or were you slightly nervous about having those conversations I I knew that we were I knew that we were open to people moving around the business we um I knew that people would do succumbents and various opportunities we had it was being pushed quite a bit about being able to upskill and being able to uh, you know widen your your remit in the business um so it's at a time when that was being um, sort of pushed a lot as well so which was great I think a lot of it is driven by individual as well so it's not just a manager driven thing it's very much individual so if you want to achieve something you need to be asking the worst they can say is no um, and the chances why they might be saying no is because either that role doesn't exist or there's not enough demand in that space um, and I think if you are valued and they want to see the benefit of what that will bring or they can see that skill set in you and you're not able to utilise it, I think they will help to try and navigate you into something that will. Um, ultimately, the business wants to be able to work with everybody as best they can and get the best out of their people. So they've got to listen both sides. We've got to understand that. Yeah, that's really good. So uh, if, if we look at the resource manager role, so this is about, well, what, what does that involve? Is that is that sort of allocating people to projects across the wider team or is it a bit different to that? It was about being able to use this, the resources that we'd got across all of our client bases and all of our required um, aspects within a certain area of the business. So ensuring that people had a good balance of work. Um, so you might have some people that were really busy. We might have had some people that weren't so busy. So that would be the first thing that you look at is, well, how do we get that balance sorted? There'd be people that want to do things like go, going into second string. So like my example of wanting to get into project management, um, there'd be other people that wanted to upskill in some way. So we'd have, we had an initiative called second stringing and it would mean people could go and experience and, and try and take on a, a project or a client in a certain area so that they could learn a new skill set. So if you were in the DB side and you wanted to get involved in DC, you might pick up a second string in DC. Um, so it was around just trying to share that skills and, and enabling people to move more freely around the business into different areas. It would also enable them to have better conversations with their clients because you'd understand that other area of the business more as well. So I, I, for me, I saw the massive benefits of that across everybody um, and being able to do that. We also became a more national business from a, a delivery point of view. So um, rather than you just service all a, set, a group of clients out of one office, we would work cross offices so that you could get people working with other people. So you didn't work with the same consultant all the time and that you could work with different teams, learn different skill sets or different approaches to, to doing that, which I think is really important for junior staff. Um, so it was sort of overseeing how we could facilitate all that, as well as sort of keeping everybody engaged in it as well. So um, the concept of the opportunity jar is something that I brought to to the Mercer table at that point and it was around enabling people to say well we've got this project we're looking for someone of this skill set 
um, that would be able to get involved in this in this project. And it's still used to this day, um, which is great because it's it's about being more open about how people got involved in projects or got involved in pieces of work. Um, rather than it being seen as a pre-selected or who you know, you could actually go and say, oh, this is, this sounds great. I'd like to get involved in this and have the conversation with the consultant about it. So that was one of the main things I think I did and trying to give sight of resources in, in general to the business so they can make decisions about recruitment and um, dealing with attrition in, in effect. Yeah. How, how do you sort of give confidence to every single person across the business that they can actually put their hand up and, and ask for these things? Because I can imagine maybe there are people that would love to do something different but a they don't know what the options are and b they're not they're sitting there thinking oh they'd never pick me because I haven't done anything like it how how do you sort of reach out to people and encourage them to actually get involved in in these initiatives conversations and showing that we're doing it and showing that it's very transparent I think it was it was quite important so like this opportunity jar showing that it's transparent that opportunities are there and people could get involved with it uh, I think was really important because I think people always felt, oh, it's just hand selected. I don't, I don't think it is. I think it is just sometimes it's who they know or who they know has got capacity. And when you're working cross offices, you don't always know where that capacity is. So our, our sight of that information and sharing that information across the board was really important for them. And they could then take that forward to sort of approach other people sometimes, um, but because they were aware they were available or it gave individuals who might not have spoken up that they want to get involved with something, an opportunity to do it where they don't have to say it direct to the manager or, um, you know, I think manager conversations are really key to a lot of this. So getting to know the individual and them feeling as if they can say what they want is important. So those connections to your manager is really key and ensuring those open conversations around what career path they want, how they want to develop and, and not fear of repercussions, I suppose. Like if you say you don't want to go down a certain route, but you know that that's the career path that's mainly in play. You, you want to be able to be open with your manager so you can develop the skills that are needed to balance the business demands, but also what you want out of your career. And and are we are we talking about actuaries, actuarial students, or are we talking about a broader range of people that you're looking after now? I think it's everybody. Um, I think in the past, people have felt that if you don't continue with the actuarial exams and you're not becoming a scheme actuary, that you would halt your experiences in some directions. Uh, that's not my experience anymore and I think that's how the industry has changed I think what your skill sets are and what you bring to the table are important so yes the technical stuff's really important in the actuarial space uh, we can't get away from that because that's the nature of what some of that that work is um but some of the consulting skills are really important um I think I've seen people cross over from we've had people that have come into the administration business for example and they've wanted to get in, involved in actuarial and they've ended up doing that they've they've stayed, taken a side step from admin into actuarial I've wanted to then develop those actuarial skills and they've done that through the exam so they've progressed then into an actuarial role um I think it's finding a balance of where your skills are and determination um what what you want to do and showing that you're capable of doing it taking on things that are extra to show uh, you know we all say that we don't want to work tons of extra hours I don't think you need to do that I think sometimes it is taking on something extra though to show well I'm I'm invested in this I want to do it as well um so it's showing it both ways okay I'm just diving back into to LinkedIn because again there's some crossover of dates because of all the different things you've you've been involved with so at the same time as being a resource manager, you are a mental health first aider. You're the operations leader for GMP at Pace and a people manager. I think all all three or four all of those together. overlap. Yes. So could you tell us a bit about <laughs> that? Yeah, name? so 
Um, I my own experience with mental health. I obviously had a period of time where I I was in a bad place. Um, and was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, and post-traumatic stress at the time. So um, I think when we when mental health became more discussed in the workplace and we rolled out the need to have not just first aiders but mental health first aiders across the business I immediately had something that I felt I could give um, and it wasn't necessarily talking about my experience it was just having the empathy there to understand what this was about I it, they were asking for volunteers to train up as mental health first aiders and I put myself forward I found it a great opportunity it's it has enabled me to help several colleagues through various parts I think I'm much more aware of the various um, places that people um, can show or demonstrate some of these mental health issues and it can often be unseen by people that don't understand it. Um, And I think it's being able to identify some of those and ensuring that we connect with people to help people. Um, And that's one of the things that I've taken on as that that role, really. Um, It's helped me in managing people as well so helping other people managers as well how to manage their individuals having an empathy around well this might be being caused by something else um, and you just need to see if you can try and find out what else might be going on at home not just at work um, I think they're really key conversations that we have we spend a lot of our time in the workplace and we're working with colleagues we probably see more of our work colleagues sometimes than our than our personal life uh, and our families and friends so we're more likely to see some of those traits and triggers to do with mental health in the workplace uh, than maybe some people do outside of work Um, and it's also important to understand where people are to get the best out of them in the workplace if you understand what might be going on at home or where their headspace is at I think you can help them to get the help that they need or to focus on the right things in work if they're struggling with that Um, so yes so my mental health first aid role definitely took that on and we were helping to roll that out across the business so we ran sessions about raising awareness um, very interesting getting that off the ground and, and trying to get colleagues to engage with it. Um, and obviously a lot of different viewpoints on this as well uh, uh, around. I think that's changed a lot since we've rolled this out. So it's been quite a few years now. Um, and I think there's more and more mental health first aiders in the business, which is great. What were the challenges? Challenges, I think, have been just different people's opinions. Some people, I, having experienced it myself and having returned to work, I had some people that would see it as well you just need to get on you just need to get on with stuff and I think it's that people don't realize with mental health it's not something you have a choice over um you can't choose to have those problems it's a bit like if you've got a broken arm if you've got a broken arm people can see it and they understand why you might not be able to write a letter or why you might not be able to use your keyboard but when it's something that's more internal which is to do with your mind and the mental well-being people can't see it so they can't understand it and empathize with it as much so it's well you just need to forget about that and get on with it but if you're in a really bad place sometimes you can't do that and you can't achieve that so it's it's just trying to get people to understand it if they've not experienced it themselves or seen it or experienced it from others around them I think sometimes it can be hard for some colleagues to understand that um so it's just trying to share experiences and um raise awareness to get people to be more aware and be more mindful of it of the colleagues around them I've I've not experienced it myself and I feel like if I had then I'd be more confident maybe asking questions about it and and things like that but if if someone hasn't and maybe they're managing a team what what do you sort of say to them I think it's 
sometimes people's behaviors change and I think if you notice there's a change in behavior in some way it's being aware well what's causing the change of behavior it might not be something that they are fully aware of they might not know that they've changed how they're dealing with stuff they might not um be aware that it's coming across to others as it is either so it, it's it's just having that awareness to to pick up signs of a change in behavior if they've gone really quiet for example or they don't seem to be as engaged on calls anymore or um even things like reluctance to come into the office there, there could be something that's causing that and it's trying to see what that might be and just raising awareness about it and having a conversation and just check is everything okay how's things at home having those connections around the coffee machines we always used to say were important um just having general day-to-day conversations uh, and and normalizing some things for some people is important um and I, I don't think you need to necessarily have a conversation or have you have you have you got anxiety or are you depressed it's not that i think it's just people connection um, and I think COVID had a lot to account for that as well. I think that's that's created a lot more of of mental well-being conversations because people have become isolated and sometimes they feel more nervous about coming back to the office or they are more used to being um, not around people as much. So they're less aware of what their own personal space might be or how they're coming across to others. Um, I think encouraging people to be on Zoom on on pitches, not everybody's comfortable with it, but, you know, we have calls sometimes and colleagues don't want to turn the cameras on, but it's actually really important because you learn a lot about a colleague from how they're expressing things or how they're talking. Are they giving eye contact? Is someone's avoiding eye contact? All all these little things that they're very small, but they can speak volumes if you actually keep an eye on it and seeing changes in that behaviour. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, GMP at pace operations leader. Yes. Could you tell us a bit more about that? So um, industry-wide thing that we have to deal with, we have to deal with um, GMP rectification and GMP equalisation. So this is all about taking members' benefits that were payable at different ages between men and women and um, ensuring that we are paying the right benefits according to either HMRC or the scheme rules and, and what the, the scheme has decided to do with those benefits and also then equalising those benefits between males and females. Um, it's probably a massive project that is required by law. Um, so it's been brought in by legislation and is a very big task for a lot of schemes and doesn't just include existing members. It's also having to deal with members that might have been in a scheme before and have transferred out or um, various different things have to be considered by the trustees and the legal teams around how they can handle it and what they can and can't do with it. Um, the projects involve um, a lot of intense work to go through every, every member's records to correct what is there and to ensure that we've equalised the benefits correctly. So you're doing it on a member-by-member basis, um, which makes that a lot more detailed than we would normally do. So it's like a bit, doing a very big rectification exercise, um, but across the whole scheme membership to make sure we've covered everybody. Um, and for me, the role is overseeing how this is working operational. So ensuring that we are able to deliver to our clients, ensuring that we align our processes um, the delivery, so ensuring that we've got the right staff in the right places, where the demand's going to come up, forecasting, so we can see when we're going to need certain staff in certain areas to expedite that work, um, and also bringing together several teams because we've utilised skill sets from lots of different teams to do this. So it's it's about bringing those teams together and ensuring that we can run as one. 
Okay. Um, I'm, I'm interested to, from, from people I've spoken to, you get, if we're talking about actuaries, there are actuaries who specialise in GMP work, and then there are people who don't. And what t- tends to happen fairly often is those who don't, they still have clients who obviously need this work done, and they will be brought on to to help out with some of their time to do some some calculation work. And the people who don't specialise in it, but have to do it, are usually, not always, but they're usually the people that kind of say, oh, I wouldn't want to specialise in that area full time. Um, it's not for me, etc, etc. Um, but I kind of think, actually, if they did, it, there's so much more to it than the little bit of technical stuff they're being, air quotes, dragged into. Um, yeah. And I'd love to sort of open people's eyes up to what it can actually offer them. So, so for those people who have just done a little bit here or there, maybe not enjoyed it that much, What's it actually like when you really specialise? What what can it offer someone? So, from from how I've seen how this works, we've we've got an array of people that are involved to do with GMP. We've got people that purely do GMP equalisation work, and then we've got people that will do GMP equalisation work and the consulting aspects of it. So you've then got the people that are going out to talk to clients or helping other consultants about how to go about this and and the processes and all the things to consider because there's so many levels of things to consider when you're doing it. Um, There is then also the people that might only do this as part of their role. So we have people that might spend 20% of their time doing GMP equalization. Um, When you're dealing with the actual technical calculations, it's very intense and if you imagine a project might be picked up by someone and they might be working on it for two, three weeks solid to get from where they start the project to when they finish the project and it's going on to then the checker that's going to check it. It's very difficult if someone's spending 20% of their time on it because they're only doing one day a week. So it's finding that balance around who can pick up what type of work so that you can progress projects in a timely fashion as well. Um, I think it brings the ability to do project work, which I think is becoming a bigger thing in the industry. There's a lot of projects that come off the back of some of this. It's also bringing in things like um, risk transfer projects. So some of these things might be then getting involved in a pension increase exchange. They might be involved in a buyout or a buy-in in in some way. Um, And so there's all these interactions that are going on as well for GMP. And it's being very aware of all those things and having an understanding and how it all fits together is important. I think even if you're not involved in GMP equalisation, I think any scheme actuary or anyone that's touching anything to do with DB pensions needs to understand it and needs to understand the complexity of it for both an administration part of the business as well as an actuarial part of the business and a consulting part. Because if you're advising your client on the next stages for their pension scheme, you need to be aware of it and you need to understand, well, how long do these things take? What sort of data have I got? What what things are we going to have to account for when we deal with this? Um, and it's very scheme specific. So you need to have that understanding of what this is all about, not just sort of seeing it as well as a, another set of people that will do this for me. It, it, I think it's engagement across the piece for everybody. Um, so I think there's a massive benefit for those that get involved. They can see how much detail is involved and the sort of complexities that are involved and the constraints that are there for various parties that are involved as well so you know when we've got to get legal advisors involved that could take it could take a few weeks it could take a few months so when you're doing a project plan and trying to align everything you're then reliant on other parties that have got to give responses as well so that's just a an example of things where if you don't understand all that and you're saying to your client well we can do gmp equalization um and it'll take us six months it's not taking account of all the different parties that are involved for me it's um 
I think this is a stepping stone for showing how people can move around the business as well because ultimately when GMP equalization is complete it'll be complete um, and they'll need to then gravitate into other areas and I think there's going to be more and more project work that will come off the back of this then as well I think there'll be more schemes looking at their end of life journeys so a natural progression will be for them to start being involved in that work as well so creating a project type role where you can adapt and using the technical skills that you've developed and learning to deal with new things is always going to be there you know we there'll be things that come out in legislation I'm sure that we haven't accounted for yet because we don't know about it um so it's showing that you can pick that up and get involved in it and and get up to speed quickly and change how you're working from it what why do you why do you enjoy what you do so much is it because you have to you've been doing it so long now or, or what parts of the role do you take genuine enjoyment from I think for me I think it's I'm a problem solver in the main I enjoy finding out what's going on and trying to give a solution or trying to handle what's going on um, and offering the the expertise I've learned so doing business strategy doing proposals for the business about the next stages that we're going to do or the direction that we should go in next changes that we need I, I encompass quite a lot so it's not I, I, I understand the technical work because I was an ex-actuary I am able to step in and be involved and understand the conversations around this which is massively beneficial um, and at the same time I've had my operations type role when I was in transformation so I understand as well the need for getting operational structure around this um, it is a big task and I think it was something far bigger than probably the industry thought to start with um, and I think that's where because we're bringing different lines of business together you know the data is being supplied by administration so we've got to get that data from administration and we've got to work with that data and, and find ways to get through this um, it's a great opportunity then to also look at that data it is a data cleanse exercise is needed so for me it's a, it's brought other aspects of the business and things that we can offer to clients into the mix for us to then look at are there other ways that we could bring other things to the table for clients is there better ways that we could to run a project is there um, new skills that we could bring into the business such as project management for example do we should we bring people into project manage um, it, it just brings a, a massive array of opportunities to look at for the business, propose it, put it to the table and see see if we can drive the business in, a, in another direction. And if, if, if people, again, whether they're still working their way through the exams or qualified or stop started, whatever, but if someone's on an actuarial career path, but they're listening to you thinking that sounds very interesting, maybe more interesting than what what I'm likely to do for the next couple of years. Um, how, how can someone move into this area? I, I think wherever you are, if you say that you want to get involved in something like this, I think most people would jump at it um, uh, and try and help them to do that. It is very technical. So sometimes it's around trying to make sure they've got the technical skills um, to be able to do the work as well. It, it can be really complex. Um, I think making sure that they've got those understandings of how benefits are calculated, understanding GMP, late retirement on GMP, um, anti-franking, massive discussion. Um, and some of those things are are things that people have experienced probably a little bit more time ago than maybe our more recent joiners into the business. Um, and I think that's where it's just having an understanding of all that so that you can get into the detail to get involved in these GMP projects. Um for me, it's around put your hands up. You know, if you want to get involved, you might need to give more than a day a week of time if you're new to it because it might take you a while to get up to speed with it. 
talk about doing a succumbent maybe into it um, and, and second into it for a period of time. Um, I'm sure people would happily take on people doing that. But it's it's the investment as well. So, you know, it can take people a few months to get fully up to speed with the new process or the calculations that are involved. So you need to realise that sometimes it might might be a bit more than a, a couple of months of common. It might be more like a six, 12 months of common into it. Um, but it's beneficial. I think it helps people that maybe didn't have that exposure to technical skills as much and are more on the consulting side for an actuary. It definitely will give them that, that technical exposure about understanding benefits and... Um, conversion will also bring about a lot of the actuarial concepts to them as well so uh, it gives you that exposure which they might not get in other places. Did you ever think about that last exam and how things might have been different if you had given it one more go or or, or you're glad you didn't? I, I have I tried to go back to it once in a while I've, I've, I've tried to go back to it I've decided I definitely don't want to Um, I've actually gone down a slightly different career path of in what I'm doing so I don't need it to do the role that I do Um, I think a lot now is more around the experience for me. So I understand all those concepts. So when I'm in conversations, I understand the business more because of it. Um, and I understand what it's like to be a consultant. I understand what it's like to be an actuary. I understand um, how difficult their day-to-day lives might be because of things as well. So when you're dealing with the operational side, you, you can sort of take account of that as well. Um, I think, yeah, I, I, ha- I, have, I have considered it. Mercer's been very good. I actually undertook um, a diploma through Mercer, um, not last year, the year before. So I did my level five manager's course, uh, management development program, it's called. And I'm actually going to start the level seven, which is the equivalent of a, a degree. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. So it's, a, it's about developing another skill set. And this, this next one's more about strategy. So which I think is definitely where I'm, I'm heading at the moment. Yeah. Do you get time off to do that or do you have to fit it in weekends and that kind of thing? It's it's a mix. Some, some of it is on the job. So, you know, applying it to my everyday job and also um, questions that you get asked through it is around um, things that you're doing in your job. So you should have examples there from what you're doing in your role or you're applying a new concept that you're learning. Um, so, yes, it is supported and it is encouraged to try and do some of that learning. I think in general, we're encouraged anyway to be spending time every week doing some sort of learning for our roles. Um so I think, yes, it's there um, and it is supported. The business massively support this because they can see the benefit from it. So um, I, I, st- I start it next month, so I'll tell you more afterwards, James. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, that, that's probably a good time for me to um, sort of pick up the, the three questions that I'd like to ask each person um, towards the end. So question number one is, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting their career in pensions today? If you're just starting your pensions career today, uh, my biggest advice don't be scared of the unknown <laughs> um, and and when there's opportunities arise jump at them take those opportunities see see what it's about you know the worst that can happen is you decide it's not for you but at least you've tried um, I think definitely networking and ears to the ground about what things are going on and if you hear something that sounds interesting get involved with it volunteer to do it um, definitely if you are, for me, one of my biggest things was learning that I'd built a lot of skill set outside of work. So if that's your, if that's you as well, like you've done stuff that's outside of work and you think, well, I've not used that skill in work, find ways to bring that into work because the chances are that if you're using it outside of work, it'll bring good things at work. I think I've progressed a lot since I've done that. Um, and I think that's quite important. Okay. How do you see the role of the UK I'm pausing because I've got to bear in mind you're not an actuary these days, but the, <laughs> I'll ask the question, but you can answer it in any way you like. How do you see the role of the UK pensions actuary evolving over time? 
I I think we all thought years ago that the Pensions Actuary for the UK might not be as it was today and new legislation comes about and things change and directions of markets change and I think it's an unknown. I think it's so difficult to predict what will happen. I think we've got a lot of work still to do in the UK DB pensions market. Um, so I don't I don't see this going away anytime soon. I think it's something that I think people will develop into other areas as well. So we've got risk management, we've got, um, you know, the, even getting involved in DC, there's people that are involved in the DBD, DC stuff mixed together. Um, so I think it's just being open to picking up new things along the way and learning those skill sets. I, I think there's a lot more around the consulting with clients and being aware of what our clients want and need. Um, I think, I don't know, I, I think that, there's a part of me that always wonders at some point will we see a, a return of the DB schemes almost um, because people are, are having a lot more risk and will we be able to all retire because of DC and the risks that are under DC? I don't know. Um, it'll be an interesting to see how it all plays out. Yeah. And my final question is, what are you looking forward to in the next 12 months? And that can be work, it can be personal, it can be one of each. So personally, I think I'm, I'm looking forward to getting stuck into this new um, development program, this level seven. Um, I feel like that's something I want to develop something more in my skill set and I think it'll give me something in my skill set and my bucket. Um, in work, that is part of work because of, of what it is naturally. Um, I think seeing more of these schemes and everything bedding down that we've been putting into place for GMP, I think will be massive beneficial over the next 12 months. I'm, I'm really hopeful on that. Um and I, th I think it's just, oh, I'm, I'm always open to change. I'm someone that doesn't resist change. So I think there's always going to be changes in the industry, changes in business. And so there'll be changes that come up along the way. And I think it'll be really great to be involved and see how those plan out and, and see what the next challenge is or the next successes are. Fantastic. I'm going to throw in a bonus question for you, which is <laughs> you've, you've, you've taken on a lot of different roles during your career. Would you have done anything differently, whether that's in a different order or cut any steps out or it I, I've done a lot of self-reflection because of going through divorce and my own mental well-being stuff going through having time with a life coach I wouldn't change it because it's made me who I am today um and I think that's really important because it's given me the skills that I've got today I think there's decisions that I've taken along the way that yeah had I known with hindsight would I have taken those decisions probably not um, but that hindsight's a great thing. We, you know, if we all had hindsight, we would probably make numerous different decisions, but that is ultimately what makes us who we are and gets us to where we are today. Um, I think there's things that, yes, maybe I should have done my other last actuarial exam before I had children that it's really easy to say, but would that have changed my career direction? Probably not. Um, so there's things where you think it might be a personal reason that you regret it, but actually it's not going to have changed the outcome anyway. So it's not a, a massive change. Well, Alexis, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. And um, I'm sure there'll be people listening to this that would love to get in touch themselves, ask you a few things. Are you happy for them to do so? And if so, more than happy. what's the best way for them to contact you? More, more than happy. I'm, I'm open on LinkedIn. People can more than happily link in to me, find out, ask me questions. I'm more than happy to, to help anybody. Brilliant. Well, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile in the in the show notes. And um yeah, once again, thank you so much for being so open and honest about your experiences to, to date. It's been a pleasure and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Actuarial People. Please don't forget to subscribe and consider leaving a review. 
If you have any questions or feedback or any suggestions for future guests, please contact me on info at actuarialpeople.com. This podcast is sponsored by my recruitment company, Turner Perkins, and you can contact me there at james.turner at turnerperkins.com. Hope to see you again.